All over the world, fools are poised, ready to let death fly. Machines of death, Morgane, screaming from above, of light brighter than the sun. Not a war between armies, not a war between nations, but just death. Death gone mad. A child looks up to the sky and his eyes turn to cinders. No more tears, only ashes. Is this honor? Is this war? Are these the weapons you would use? I'm Eddie Webb. And I'm Chris Spivey. And today we talk about Battlefield here on Genreless. Hello and welcome to what it's all been building towards. The real reason Chris and I wanted to do this whole run. Talk about the seventh doctor. <laughs> And I like how you skipped all the episodes with Mel in it, even though I think there are one or two that you personally love that I question. Yes. But definitively the best run of the classic series, in my opinion. No, Yeah, I agree. Like, I mean, I, I can and will defend chunks of seasons 24 and 25, but this is... Battlefield is the start of season 26 is the last season of classic Doctor Who and is also arguably, although you, neither of us will probably argue about it, the best season of Doctor Who, classic Doctor Who, period. Um, it is very bittersweet that Doctor Who finally found its feet for the late 80s, finally found a new direction, and uh, it's it gets its legs cut out from under it right as it was finally finding its stride. But honestly, I I picked this one for a couple of reasons, but one of which is that this this season, frankly, as a whole, you can start to see the seeds of what will become the rebooted version of Doctor Who in 2005. Uh, so honestly, we probably could have just done this whole season, and, and I, I think we, uh, it's actually a disturbingly short season, frankly. Yeah. It's like 14 episodes it's really really short but i mean this is for me where doctor who starts to cement itself as a mythology right um and of course what better way to start that process off than by tying him very directly with king arthur <laughs> so it's not well, subtle. that <laughs> yeah. part of that mythology comes from andrew cartmel though and right as some people have dubbed it the master plan. And and Eddie, as you were the host, I am in a quandary. Pray right. tell, Eddie, what is the master plan? I, I love that you say that as if you don't know. I am the uh, voice of the listener, the average person trying to understand this thing that you call Doctor Who. What, what is this strange show about a man who flies around a porta potty? I don't understand what's going on. <laughs> Well, before I go to the master plan, let's talk about Andrew Cartmel. He is the last script editor uh, for Doctor Who, and in a very reductive way, he's basically everything Eric Sayward wasn't. He was aggressively politically active. He allegedly I, – I think this is pretty confidently confirmed, but I, I can't – directly confirm it uh but he apparently got the job by saying he wanted to use doctor who to take down the thatcher government <sighs> so he was very politically minded very much felt that 
Doctor Who could be something. And also he was the f- as far as I'm aware, the first time someone started working on Doctor Who who came in as a fan, but who also was not slavishly devoted to what JNT had kind of believed fans wanted. Right? It was a new kind of wave of fandom where they saw the core of Doctor Who, not necessarily the trappings. Can we also touch on probably something else that JNT liked? Sure. That he was likely cheap because he didn't have a lot of writing credits under his name at the time. Yes. And he wanted the job. Like, that's huge. And also, Cartmel was drawing inspiration from some really good things that were either in the zeitgeist or slightly out of the zeitgeist. Like he famously tried to get Alan Moore to write a script for the TV show, (laughs) which is hilarious because Alan Moore had just been burned on the Marvel comic of Dr. Who. And so it was like, I don't want to work for Marvel. And say, no, 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 I'm actually here for the TV show. Uh, And apparently they did actually talk through a script that fell apart. And I can't even imagine what an Alan Moore eighties Dr. Who script would look like. That just breaks my brain. I can't imagine what it looked like, but I could envision what would happen 10 years later and how Alan Moore would disassociate himself totally from the episode and say that right. he doesn't believe it. It was all crap. Right. Uh, we would have four episodes of Doctor Who written by the original writer. <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's a Watchmen reference for you folks don't know. But I mean, he was also, but he was reading, like looking at Vertigo comics. Uh, he was uh, looking at cyberpunk. Um, he was looking at the cutting edge of science fiction and fantasy media, you know, like if Dr. Who had gone on from the season or two, we might have had a, you know, a Neil Gaiman episode much, much earlier than we actually did. So he reached out to, he was making smart moves. How to get new people in Dr. Who is to get people who are already thinking in these modes and train them to write Dr. Who rather than trying to find other TV writers and train them to write Doctor Who. So um, it, was, it, was a, it was a smart Brilliant. move. Um, and this one is Ben Aronovich did this? No, Ben Aronovich did. I think, I think he did this one, actually. He also right. did Silver Nemesis, right? No, he did Remembrance of the Daleks was the other one he did. I'm pretty right. sure. But Ben Aronovich was relatively new at this time, uh, has since gone on to become not only a prolific uh, Doctor Who writer of tie-in media, but also um, has his own novel series and, and is, frankly, just a, a really good, solid writer. Uh, the other thing that Cartmel, other two things that Cartmel was known for, the first one... Ben Aronovich wrote Battlefield. Okay, go. Was that he was notoriously bad about estimating how much script pages were required for television time. Uh, so, and frequently overshot. So a lot of times things had to be cut down. Uh, you see some of that in battlefields. Uh, the biggest candidates for this is ghost light, um, which. Oh, we were so close to doing ghost light spoiler. We're not doing it because we weren't, Eddie refused. We're not, frankly, because it's, the only way oh. to understand Ghostlight is to watch it three times and then read the tie-in novel and then watch the interviews. And then you kind of sort of see what the plot was supposed to be. Our fans would do that homework to hear us talk about Ghostlight, Eddie. I've done that I homework. Su- what are you talking about? I suggested Ghostlight to Eddie, and Eddie like <laughs> flipped over our virtual table 
and walked out of the room. It, I was what? It's like I watched Batman Returns for you, and he's like, "No Battlefield for you, Spivey." No Battlefield. Oh, I love him. Like that. While Chris is being hyperbolic as usual, he's not entirely wrong. I did actually question Ghostlight because Ghostlight is. <laughs> it's three episodes. It's one of the few times where it's like this needed one more episode, um, and not in a because we love this in the no it needs one more episode like just explanation of what the hell is happening but i actually like ghost i i love everything in this season so uh uh but the 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 final thing is that we with this season we see the seeds of what has retroactively been dubbed the cartmel master plan although andrew cartmel himself has disowned it saying that he was going to like most television probably figure out each season as it came rather than any kind of master plan. Uh, but still from a 1980s perspective, it was mind boggling, which is he wanted to have genuine continuity between episodes. He wanted to have character arcs between episodes in a way that JNT thought he was trying to do in the fifth doctor, but would actually be happening in a much more modern way. And this is like pre like, Babylon 5, but he was trying to shoot for something like that of you would have to watch previous seasons to understand what future seasons were building on. Um, and so what happens in season 26 is Ace has an aborted character arc, sadly, but she does have an actual character arc in season 26. And part of it is he wanted to add the mystery back to the Doctor. Yeah, because we'd gotten to the point where all of that was gone, which is why they introduced a concept of some of this will pull on ex other knowledge that you know necessarily from the series itself, but the concept of the other who is someone that might have been running around with Rassilon and Omega, and that was alluded to that the Doctor may have been, which you get a glimpse of in like the hand of Omega and things like that. And there's mm -hmm. talk that Ace might have eventually gone off to Gallifrey to train the Academy. There are all those sorts of things sort of interwoven in there, but it was primarily put mystery back into the doctor, which means they had to focus on the companion to give them more of a developed character arc and the relationship between the doctor and them is how that would be developed. And so you still get the right. doctor through that relationship, but you don't reveal more of the doctor's past, which right. then and that, that, adds more life to the show. Yeah. And that's why I, I made the comment I did about um, uh, this is kind of doctor who becoming a mythological figure in a lot of ways, because uh, he well, so we talked before about how Patrick Troughton kind of played in the margins of the story, even though he was ostensibly the lead of the show. The second Doctor would do a lot of kind of encourage people to move into actions, and he would play the fool to try to get people to underestimate him while he was actually secretly doing things you know, behind the scenes. And that kind of challenge of 60s television trying to do that while also figuring out he was actually the lead. And that gets kind of blotted out until we get back to the seventh doctor. But Cartmel and McCoy have both found that a path forward with that, which is that McCoy can still be charming and fun and foolish on screen without playing all of his cards. Uh, and so what we end up with starts in the previous season, but it really lands in this season. It's doctorate, the doctor as manipulator, as master planner. And so when you start to allude to that and you make it more mysterious and like he's got schemes and, and, and plans going on and then the show stops, naturally there is a momentum to fill that void. If 
I, I argue if this show had been canceled one season earlier, it probably would still be dead. Hmm. Or at least in a very different shape than it is now. That Because it would have ended on what episode then? Where Battlefield now, he picked up Ace, so... God, what was the name it, of that one? It, on the it, Ice yeah. Planet. Dragonfire. I mean, Are you saying we yeah, would have ended on Dragonfire? No, no, no. Because, I mean, we had... We had a whole season because I was like, you know, remembrance of Daleks and whatnot. Oh, that's right. Uh, so, now, I mean, I would, it would, it would, it would have ended on the greatest show in the galaxy, which I no, mean, okay. Maybe, I, maybe I, it would, yeah. if it ended on Dragonfire, I would agree with you. Then it would have been done. Right. But ending on, you have Remembrance of the Daleks, which is in of itself a really good episode. And True. greatest show in the galaxy is pretty solid. There are bits of it I like. And you get a glimpse of the doctor fighting against like the gods of Ragnarok. No, and, that, that, that's fair. That's fair. Which, funnily enough, so as, as people know, that I'm still posting on social media a lot about Doctor Who. And I had someone come into like my Facebook and was telling me that the Doctor has never faced an opponent as powerful as the toy maker. And I was like, <laughs> you, are, are you a new wave fan or like an old school fan? But either way, he fought. The Tenth Doctor fought the like the incarnation of Satan. There was right. the gods of Ragnarok. There were, and I listed off all these other pink things, and he went, "Uh, you're wrong," and then outed. It's like, come on, if you want to come and have a a discussion with a Whovian, you can. If you want to come and start a fight with me, then you need to bring weapons, right? Because I will smoke you if we're talking about Doctor Who. All right. Yeah, this is this is this is Fenris Erasure and also we literally had an entire podcast episode about where Doctor Who faced Satan. Come on. Seriously. So it's bah. Yeah, it's nonsense. But, uh, but to no, your original fair. point, I, I I think it would have made it and it would it would have taken a little longer, but that was that season is still strong enough to have made people want to keep going with it. I mean, that's fair. I mean, the more the more uh, I, I, I glance at this, it's like season twenty five is kind of almost a dress rehearsal for season twenty six in a lot of ways. Because remember, the Daleks they also start bringing some of the mystery back into it. Um, Happiness Patrol is straight up political satire. Uh, Silver Nemesis also exists, and then the Greatest Show, of the Galaxy, is kind of Doctor Who. Silver Nemesis. Weird. It 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 could have been good. It just wasn't. And the Greatest Show, of the Galaxy, of course, has. Hippie werewolves, and how can you be mad about hippie space werewolves? <laughs> but season twenty six is is very clearly not only is this good Doctor Who, but this is actually good late eighties television, and is actually slightly ahead of its time for the first time in easily ten years. I agree, and we have to take into account that this is still running against Coronation Street is where they still have Doctor Who slotted. Additionally, I know this episode got low viewing figures. I, I didn't even really have to do homework for this part of Sylvester McCoy's era because I know it so well. But it was against like some massive game at the time. So people are either watching the game or Coronation Street and some people trickled in to watch Doctor Who and it got its lowest viewing figures ever. But the amount of competition it was against is staggering to then say that they were the lowest, but they weren't horrible. Right. They... Viewing figures, actually, I read an article about this. Viewing figures are kind of a weird metric, uh, particularly at this time period, because of how they were acquired and what they meant. Uh, it's like a lot of people will look at points of Doctor Who and say, yeah, this is one of its lowest viewing figures. But also, 
Doctor Who in the 80s versus Doctor Who in the 60s, television had changed fundamentally. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't think it's too hyperbolic to say that Doctor Who in 63, Doctor Who in 89, television changed as much as streaming to like, say, early 2000s TV has changed. So there are a lot more stations on there's a lot more content on uh the nature of the bbc and that kind of television they showed had changed uh so of course you can look at like say tom baker numbers and go what's nowhere near those like yes but also there were like a lot less channels Um, it was on a better time slot uh, and how people watch television fundamentally changed well, you're also talking from talking about the 60s, you're talking about going from live recording a show to something that has been pre-recorded in the can for a while by the 80s. Right. Like that in of itself changes the everything about how a show operates. Right. So people at the time pointed to the the viewing figures and said, "Oh, yep, it it it's not it, it, it's low, so we're going to can this." But A, the BBC was actively trying to bury this show. Because they knew that if they just canceled it, they would have another horrible music video to contend with to try to get back on air. They had to come up with a reason why to end it. So By this time, I think I forgot his name now, but uh, Mikey, the guy that hated Colin Baker, had already moved on. But his understudy, something Powell, I think, also hated the show and was right. like actively gunning for it. Right. And so in a lot of ways, the pre-trial of the Time Lord season, how the BBC reacted to that was the dress rehearsal for their eventual phasing out. And it took four more years. That That's how much work they had to do to try to actively undermine the show to the point where they could finally cancel it. That's And that's something to keep in mind. Um, despite all of these obstacles, it was still pulling in decent numbers. And... One thing the BBC did not contend with is that Doctor Who was, and particularly in this era, was reinventing itself as cult television. And cult television was becoming an actual market that could be serviced. But it got canned right before that actually blossomed in the 90s. Yeah. So, Eddie, you've told me a lot about the show's history and something about Andrew Cartmel. Who the fuck is Sylvester McCoy to come in after? The bombastic Colin, I got horrible scripts, and Sayward stabbed me in the back, Baker. I want to start by saying I adore Sylvester McCoy. Um, he is one of my favorite doctors. He is a genuinely nice man. Uh, he recorded a I – mean, it was on Cameo, but uh, he recorded a video for me for my birthday. Um, so my family paid for him to tell me happy birthday. So I, I love Sylvester McCoy deeply. But before Doctor Who, his main claim to fame was he was a man who shoved ferrets down his trousers. That's a nice one. I thought you were going to go for the the big one. Which was the big one? Where he was part of a a traveling group, and they would go around doing different things, and he would put nails into his nose. I did not know that. He was was one of those people. Wow. So originally, he wanted to become... Well, originally he wanted to become a monk, amongst other things, and right. at a very young age, but was too young, so they turned him down. He's that's funny because Andrew Tom Baker also mm-hmm. was a monk, very much so. Makes you was there a, makes was you there wonder a third? about 
Is there another doctor that actor that was in the monastery? I feel like there was. Maybe, but I don't know off the top of my head. I know Portman was in the Navy. So, and I know Trout was in the military, and Hartnell was right. in the military. Right. Yeah, Davison something. Was a uh, Davison was an actor, I think. Yeah. So was Colin. I don't think we ever. I thought there was more of Baker, Colin Baker. I don't know. <laughs> you know no, no. Actually, you know, I'm thinking of uh, actually it is uh, Dave Doctor because um, uh, I just listened to an interview. Um, Paul McGann. With Paul McGann, who said that he almost went into the monastery to decide against it. So. All right. This is, I guess this is just my utter Americanness now. Is is joining a monastery a usual occupation for Europe? That, that I don't know. I don't know if it's a a Church of Cultural England thing, difference. a Protestant thing. I don't know, honestly. I'm curious. I'll look into that. Hmm. If any of our listeners know, uh, please feel free to let us know. But anyway, uh, a bit like Tom Baker, McCoy had a, let's say, eclectic career prior to Doctor Who. And he was an accountant. He was hired primarily to be a clown, right? I mean, especially if you look at season 24, he was, that was kind of what JNT wanted out of him. It is the, let's just contrast the angry doctor with the silly doctor. But what's interesting about that is in his audition tape, which I have seen because I am that kind of nerd, he basically did an angry speech against someone who was very thinly written to be Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) And it was an angry polemic, which is why he actually got the job. So he was hired by the script editor because of his potential for, for strong, angry monologues, which arguably is a good thing for a Doctor Who actor to have. Um, and JNT is like, he can play the spoons. That's what we're going to lean into. Uh, and, and so we have this kind of weird blending of things. And, and what results out of it is you get a surprisingly textured portrayal of the Doctor for the first time in several incarnations. Um, whereas with Peter Davidson, he tried to add some nuance and texture to the scripts and it took time for me at least to recognize and see that, but now I see it and I love it. Uh, Colin Baker just didn't have the time uh, to overcome his bombast, except for the glimmer and glimmer we saw when we were talked about it. But this is a doctor who's written for schizophrenically and McCoy manages <laughs> to synthesize all of his different views of who the doctor should be into actually one relatively cohesive character. Uh, and so you have a doctor that can plan the overthrow of an entire species while joking around and playing the spoons. And that is not a weird thing, especially when we hit the season where he starts to seamlessly move back and forth between all of his different versions of himself. And it becomes fascinating to watch. It's incredible. And to, to your point, Sylvester McCoy is a brilliant and great and incredibly personable person who I've told the story before, but I'll say it again came to a convention in Baltimore, went and saw him. He entertained my daughter for 10 minutes and just hung out with us mm-hmm. for, because that's what he did. So nothing but kudos for him. And having also met Andrew Carmel, who was a very nice man also. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing that Seth McQuay does that I think is, is important. And it's weird that this is something that needs to be said 
but Sylvester McClure recognizes that he ultimately is an entertainer for children. And mm -hmm. I think that's what helps his portrayal is because while he's playing this mysterious, mythological, dark character, he recognizes he's making children's television. So the fact that he's entertaining your daughter is completely in track because he loves entertaining kids. That's one of his joys that he loves doing that. And that's something we haven't seen someone who's that joyous about entertaining children since Tom Baker. Yeah, easily. Eddie. Yes. As, as I love carrot juice and I'm disappointed in Mel's departure, who is this Sophie Aldrin that is going to replace the amazing Mel who joined a ship with Savalon Glitz for some reason? Why would you do that? Not the worst writing out of a companion, but man, it's up there. Uh, so yeah, we just got Mel, who is a companion that was also ill-treated. Not quite as bad as Perry, but certainly up there. She was also kind of brought in for, for comedic effect, and her defining characteristic was that she could scream on key. Literally, at one point in time, she was asked to scream in a certain key to blend better with the outro music, which is both fascinating and dumb, which is peak Doctor Who. Uh, but then Sophie Aldridge comes in, and Sophie Aldridge was, I believe, also a children's television presenter. Uh, um, so another woman who recognizes she's making children's television. And one of the reasons why I think Ace is such a fascinating character is that she is a children's television version of a rough youth, right? <laughs> <laughs> she's not going to stab someone with a knife and take their drugs. It's through that children's television lens, but she recognizes that like she, she, she knows that this character has to have some edge within this very limited constraint. Uh, so again, because both Sylvester and Sophie know how children's television works and how these characters need to be pitched almost immediately. They have fantastic chemistry. Like aces, introduced she's as much as i said that mel was not the worst but up there in terms of how she's written out ace is probably one of the worst introductions of a companion because her introduction is i whipped up a time storm with my chemistry set because reasons and i dumped an ice cream shake over someone's head and now i'm fired and need a job i'll hang out with this interactive <laughs> hobo and travel through time and space what the actual fuck two of those three things is awesome I'll let yes, you decide which ones. But it has nothing to do with Ace as a character, <laughs> right? It's just nothing. It, it's like it, it, all right, if you watch there, Ace, if you watch, go ahead. I will dis I will disagree with you, my friend. The okay. chemistry set bit is essential to who the character of Ace is. Because constantly throughout there's a running gag the Nitro Nine and her being well, yes. scientific, like an underscore of the quotation marks, rough youth, but is a brilliant scientist. Like that. And what happens later in the run all leads back to Ace being able to do those things. Okay, I, I, I will accept that. This, I, it's not the chemistry part that bothers me. It is the, I use my chemistry set, whipped up a time storm, and that is just delivered like that's an everyday thing that happens to, to kids in Perryvale, London. And the fact is that the, the how it comes up later is so clearly a way to explain this completely garbage introduction. It, it, it's not that it's... <laughs> 
which I think tells to the point of, of how season 25 and 26 works really well is that it's such a bad introduction and Cartmel mines it for really good effect. So I'm not saying that it didn't lead anywhere because it clearly does. And it ends up resulting in one of the more interesting companions, probably the, one of the best companions, the classic era. There would be no Rose without Ace. Right. But anybody else, it, could you imagine Eric Sayward running with that ball, right? Eric Sayward wouldn't have made a character that could do that if it was a female presenting character. Because that right. would not have been a hard man that would have been able to handle the rigors of going through a wormhole. Right. Uh, so it's... it's Sayward's it, character would need need a penis and a gun to be able to be effective right it, 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 it but like, again it, it's the it it's it, it, it's a character who's kind of it feels like someone who they said oh we really love this character let's just come up with the reason why she's now the doctor's companion but it's it's a rough start and it goes so much better um because you're right i mean th- there's we're going to talk about Arsene Davies a lot in this season, which is fascinating because he's nowhere near Doctor Who showrunner at this point. Um, but if you're familiar with the first four or five years of the 2005 version of Doctor Who, you're going to see a lot of stuff that's familiar here. So this is, in a lot of ways, season 26 is a test run for season one of the 2000, 2005 series. Did you know that Ace was almost not the companion? Who was? Almost. In your favorite episode, the one where the uh, aliens and at the 50s camp in England. I forgot the name of the episode now, but the spunky sidekick who helped the doctor in that one. Oh, yeah. The alien queen who drank goo and yeah. No, no, she not the one that gets married. She was a human on the planet. I forgot her name because I haven't watched that episode because I don't really like it. Delta and the Bannerman. No, Delta Bannerman, yeah. She was a human person from the 50s who was helping the doctor. She was the first potential companion for him because they knew that Mel was going to leave. So it was going to be either her or Ace. Right. Billy? And I don't no, remember her name because I, I watched that episode like twice and I was done with it for all the time. Yeah, I mean, a fun reference to the Bunny and the Bannerman, but... It, it, it's it's not a good episode. Uh, season 24 is rough, by the way. But uh, no, I mean, it's... We're, we're talking up this season a lot, and we're, ta- and, and we're not talking about Battlefield a lot, because <laughs> Battlefield is kind of, in a lot of ways, the transition point for me. Uh, because it, it, it's... Let's take some classic bits of Doctor Who and put them in um, while mashing it up with this new direction of Doctor Who. And it's surprising that it works, but also it's frustrating because you can see that there was an, a genuine effort to try to build something out of this that we're not going to see the payoff for for at least a couple decades. We're also talking up this season a lot because the reason one of the, the key impetuses for us to get to this point was to cover the McCoy era of Doctor Who. Right. Behind the scenes, we debated about just doing a McCoy run right. in and of itself. Because we both enjoy it so much. And part of it is after the Baker era, Colin Baker era, 
it feels nice to be so joyous about Doctor Who because part of that was a slog. Just those two episodes was a slog to get through. Yeah. Yeah. Because there was so much potential that was squandered. And to see it turn around so amazingly towards this bit of the run. And even in like Remembrance of the Dialects, it t- takes a minute to touch on racism in that little piece of Doctor Who, something that hasn't really happened before. Right. To show that they are understanding it. They're trying in their own way to address it. Which then goes into, you know, I like this setting, how we even get Brigadier Bambera here as a fully formed character. Look at that transition. It's almost like yeah. I'm a podcaster now. Yeah. And, and I mean, this is, this season is one of the more inclusive of Classic Doctor Who. Just about every story has at least, well, the exception of, of one, but I think, mo- actually, no, I'll take it back. Two of the four stories um, do have interesting characters of color uh, and multiples of them. Uh, so, I mean, it's, there's, a strong effort to try to to make real change in the show and like you said ace doesn't directly deal with racism but it is as direct as they can possibly do given the time slot and production they are making and uh brief digression i want to talk about target books for a second right during before vhs came to prevalence um, there was a strong market by a company called Target Books to make novelization of Doctor Who stories. Uh, and these were done kind of initially out of order. Uh, they, they started during uh, the 70s. So there's a lot of Tom Baker and um, uh, Third Doctor stories. But over time, they eventually just started doing all of them. But what happened as a result of that is a lot of times the original scriptwriters would write these novelizations. And they would use the opportunity to kind of polish up and tweak the stories to better fit what they intended the story to be rather than the budget and constraints they had. So um, uh, back to Ben Aronovich, Ben Aronovich knew that a lot of the stuff was being cut um, and also a lot of stuff that he wanted to write, he couldn't write into the stories. So he more explicitly has a ace confront these kinds of things in the novelizations of the stories that he couldn't do on television. Uh, so we know for a fact uh, that Ace had very strong opinions about racism in 80s England. Mm -hmm. It was incredible this season. And Mm -hmm. there's also an underlying context that Ace is also a bisexual character that they couldn't expressly put on screen. But it's implied throughout different parts of the run. Yeah. And again, this episode, let's... Bennett, and the reason why I want to pick this one is because it's the one where you see the most evidence of Ace's queer. Uh, because her how she talks to Xiao Yang in this is as close to flirting as they could possibly show in television at this time. Right? It's sadly, even in later spin-off stuff, this thread is never really entirely picked up again. Mm-hmm. Um, although Sophie Aldred has openly said that she's been have no problem with Ace being bisexual. So uh, it, it's it's something that the novels never quite pick up on. Um, uh, the spin-off material never really picks up on. But all evidence around it kind of accretes around the fact that that was clearly something going on here. I'm in my head, Kanan. Ace and Tegan become a couple for a while, and it doesn't work out, but they still stay best buddies. That certainly explains a lot of the power of the Doctor. Mm-hmm. 
that that's my head cannon. So yeah, I'm, would you like to go into the episode proper that we're about forty minutes in? I can just keep talking about around <laughs> the episode if you want for another hour. The only thing I want to mention before going to episode one is uh, the use of King Arthur here. I, I, I feel is intentional because again, like I, I started off with saying Doctor Who is myth, uh, and this is a very clear attempt to kind of move that direction. Um, we're breaking down the Doctor's signifiers as mythological ones rather than continuity ones. Uh, so the inclusion of unit and the brigadier here, they're kind of recontextualized, not as here's direct continuity stuff happened in the past and more as these are the kinds of things that are appear around the doctor. And so when they show what they signify important events, which is kind of what these mythological signifiers are. And so by pairing them with things like these Arthurian references and presenting them as being of equal weight says something about the character of the Doctor. Uh, minor spoilers for what's going to see here, but the Doctor is claims to be Merlin, and the way it is presented, it is presented 100% as fact in the same way as the Doctor is friends with the Brigadier. Um, so it's the, yes, Doctor Who, Doctor, at some point in the future, becomes Merlin. That is just, everyone is absolutely convinced that is what is going to happen. Or the past. Right. Right. Now you reminded me of something I wanted to say. Go, taking a, a big step back, we won't be there long, is that the master plan that Cartmel had about adding Mr. to the Doctor and making him an other and sort of a, a more powerful being than what he is, is a great idea that was then shot upon by uh, Chris Chibnall, who made The Timeless Child. All right, I'm done. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Poop. Uh, Peter uh, Lethbridge Eddie, Stewart. one more thing. No, go ahead. You know, I'm good. All right. I could keep going, but I, I'll, I'll make this you last, last bit. One. This is your idea. Do you know how this episode relates to Bruce Campbell? I Okay. You, I'm genuinely confused. Now I do know how this relates to Bruce, Bruce Campbell. So there is a linkage between this episode and the legendary Bruce. I would love to grab a beer with him sometime. Campbell in that. Anselin somehow has lost his rank as king, a, a king named Arthur, to become a knight of King Arthur. Can you believe that? Did you not see uh, Army of Darkness, where I, I... a king named Arthur once said he must be one of Henry's men? I love you. That's a stretch. <laughs> it, it's, it's true. That actor played a king named Arthur in Army of Darkness. Uh, you're, I'm, not, I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just relates to Bruce Campbell. I've made James Bond linkages. I'm going to make Army of Darkness linkages. All right, I'm done. That's it. Episode the look one. At, the look in your face made all that <laughs> worthwhile for me. That whole trip around the sun was uh, worth it. Jesus. So you can go backwards in time. Uh, Superman reference. Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart, now retired from teaching as well as units, is enjoying retirement with his wife Doris. New Brigadier Winifred Bambera and her soldiers in a nuclear missile convoy near rural Carberry are faced with an inexplicable equipment failure and peculiar sightings of armor-clad knights. In the excitement, the unit convoy ignores a pair of hitchhikers nearby, who happen to be the Seventh Doctor and Ace, lured to Carberry by a distress signal so powerful it even crosses universes. The Doctor and Ace eventually hitch a ride with archaeologist Peter Wormsley, who is evacuating an old battlefield near Carberry, even though he is surprised to find his dig site taken over by tight-lipped unit soldiers. While he attempts to get an explanation, the Doctor honors old unit identification to get himself and Ace masquerading as Liz Shaw into the unit camp. 
<laughs> I knew you'd appreciate that. <laughs> Bambera Nonplus confiscates the passes and ejects the two travelers from the convoy, ending Ace's career as Liz Shaw. But one unit soldier who had previously served under Lethbridge Stewart recalls unit's former scientific advisor, his eccentricity, his ability to change appearance, and his tendency to attract trouble. Intrigued, Bambera gives the doctor and Ace a lift to the nearby Gore Crow Hotel and asks unit headquarters to recall Lethbridge Stewart duty. At the hotel, Ace is met by kindred spirit in Xiaoyang, who his doctor talks to innkeeper Elizabeth Rawlinson. She is blind but psychic and knows that the ancient scabbard above the inn's fireplace, an artifact found by Wormsley, is an object of tremendous and mysterious power. Ace and Sho are chatting outside the hotel when they and the doctor witness an oddly human-shaped missile crash into innkeeper Pat Rawlingsley microbrewery. It's revealed to be a knight in full armor, and when his helm is removed, he warmly greets the doctor as Merlin. The doctor, Ace and Sho, chat with the knight and Insulin, who refers to the death signal intercepted by the TARDIS as Excalibur's Call, and claims that it heralds the start of the final war and King Arthur's restoration to the throne. The doctor surmises the coming battle isn't properly part of this dimension at all and belongs to a parallel universe. But before he can test the theory, an exasperated Brigadier Bambera storms into the microbrewery and declares everyone under arrest. She is interrupted by the unexpected arrival by yet more extra-dimensional knights who prepare to kill the group. So much happens. This is episode one. And it's awesome. I want to give a shout out to Dave Lister's counterpart, uh, Winifred Bambera. And it was great to actually have a fully formed black character with something to do, who is competent at their job, who is respected. I have not seen that through any of Doctor Who up to this point, even when I watched the original series. And I ask myself now, how much of that do I get even in the current show? So. I said it. The weirdness come, of. Come fight me. Come fight me. Social no, media. I'm, not, I'm not fighting you, actually. Not you. I, I said social media. Oh, right. Oh, well, fuck social media. Go talk to Elon Musk. He's happy to have your money. Uh, no, uh, my point is, is I grew up watching later Tom Baker and Sylvester McCoy long before I watched any of the third doctor stuff or early fourth doctor stuff. So for a lot of my childhood, Winifred Bambera was my brigadier. I recognized that there's this other brigadier here, but I genuinely thought this was just some other character that came in for this episode <laughs> and was, they were just kind of just doing a little bit of the, um, here's the continuity of it. But was so got, Weird near the end, spoiler, when it's like, why is this guy getting the hero turn? Bambera's amazing. So I am mad this is the only story that Brigadier Bambera is in because she is yeah. amazing. I but I would have also appreciate the fact it... that she was also, yes, Femme Swap, Dave Lister in Red Dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> to, to cut for people that are Red Dwarf fans. Which I would have loved to have thought that if they got additional seasons unit would have showed up a few more times with her yes. as a brigadier. I agree. It feels like what Cartmel was planning here was let's show that doctor who can evolve. We don't need to always have a, a Lethbridge Stewart be in charge of unit. We could build a new unit. And that was clearly the intention is like, let's, let's build up a new era of units, build up a new supporting cast because there are other unit soldiers here that are starting to take roles that are similar to the original unit. So it looks like mm -hmm. plan was to build a more and specifically multicultural, multinational unit, not just a British unit. 
um, because lots of references to uh, a Russian unit soldier, um, a Middle Eastern unit soldier, the idea that unit is this multicultural United Nations task force. And it just got kicked out under the movements. Like, and so I, I'm mad because I, I, I – and I'm also mad that tie-in media has not done more with Vampire. Why is there not a big finish series of Vampire? Why is there not novels about Vampire? I want to see more of this late 80s era of unit, frankly. Do I need to tell you why? I, I mean I know why, but – well, I, I don't know why Big Finish hasn't. I do. Have you looked at most of the cast for Big Finish when they announce people? They, they, they're doing a lot better about that in the past few years, so I'm surprised they haven't gone back to that well. But I – I will ask you to know what you just said. That they're doing really good about hiring more actors of color in, in the past few years. They absolutely have. Past few years, yes. And Big Finish started when? Like, I I understand they're doing better now. I am talking about the track record up till now. and the Sure, change. but also, but I mean, the reason why I'm going to defend Big Finish on this, like, yeah, I can see why maybe they didn't do it earlier, but... Also, they just a few years ago did an entire run of Mags the Werewolf. So they're still happy to go back to older characters even now, right? It's not all about the new series. So, so yeah, why, why, is, why, why don't we have a box of the Bambara era of unit? I'd love that. Mags the Werewolf is a, is a big finish run. All right. I mean, yeah, I'm yeah, check that a, out. She has a three-story arc as a companion. And the actor who played Mags the Werewolf wrote one of the stories. They're clearly into Mags the Werewolf. Where's the Bambara arc? That is also something I can give a positive for Marvel is that they're letting the actress that played Miss Marvel also write comics. Yeah, so was- she she wrote like one of the big status changing episode issues of Miss Marvel. Yeah. Look at that. I've got a compliment for Marvel after a superhero run. Oh, wow. and uh, another compliment. If you haven't seen the Marvels, it is a good movie. I saw it when it came out. It was a good movie then. It's not yeah. the greatest movie, but it's a good movie that you should go and see. It's it is better than Sacred Invasion. It is better than any of the Ant Man movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so another thing in this episode is that uh, we see it's not ghost light levels, uh, but certainly there are scenes that have been cut to get this into runtime. And I feel like it does this story favors in the fact that. A lot of stuff that gets cut is the how in the hell does King Arthur have a space battle and different dimension stuff because it doesn't matter, right? What matters is we have King Arthur Space Knights. They're here, they and they know Dr. Merlin. And so by cutting that down to the bone, again, you get the kind of mythological feel of like at no point is there question that there's confusion. Ace occasion was at first is like, are you really Merlin? You know? And but and just get played out a bit more in future episodes. But like right now, Doctor's like probably, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Every, every other character from this parallel dimension is absolutely convinced that Merlin and the Doctor are the same person. I would question whether or not we don't need that because a slight spoiler for what we're about talking about in a second. I don't need as much as the Brigadier's travel log to get here as we saw. I would have rather had some of those inserts be other stuff. I, I love the Brigadier. You don't want, you I love don't want to see him. You don't want to see action napping happening by Brigadier. I, I do not want to see Brigadier Master <laughs> Lethbridge Stewart napping on a helicopter instead <laughs> of like author in a spaceship. Given the budget they had, maybe I think I'd be happier seeing Brigadier napping. Right. Right. 
and that's and, I'm, I think I'm, some of it is also it's the they they were going to cut obviously more expensive scenes, and it's like we already got this helicopter anyway. Yeah, so it, it's it's I see that. It is nice that um, Arinovich made an exert a effort to offset the fact that they had the brigadier retire to become a professor and they gave it an offhanded mention, but to pull him back into what the brigadier would actually be doing either right. like retirement or military being a professor does not didn't feel right for this character. And we know there was supposed to be an end, but they couldn't get him, but the actor is always a good sport to jump in when they need him. Yeah. God, what was that fifth doctor episode for the Hughes in Morbid undead? Yeah, more than yeah. That was meant to be kind of the Brigadier Swan song. Well, I don't know, it's supposed to be Ian Swan song. They brought the Brigadier in. Um, and so I'm glad they brought him back one more time to know here's him a proper actual send-off as the Brigadier. And for that perspective, in retrospect, I'm completely on board with it. And then Ian said, fuck all of y'all, and came back for power of the doctor. Like right. love it. Also, um, I do love that the big indicator to Ace that this is the future is that beer costs five pounds a pint and how outrageous that is in London. How much is a beer right now in London, eh? Yeah, uh, right now, if I were to go outside my door and go to the first pub and order, and order a beer, it'd probably be something like eight to nine pounds. So we know that the beer pint cost is a reoccurring bit. And for me, it brings me nothing but joy every time because Eddie gets so frustrated. Like his whole face oh, is going, motherfuckers, why are you charging me so much? beautiful doris why do we never see doris again yeah right she clearly knows some stuff's up all right we could i'll stop joking around i'm just a lie i'm not gonna stop joking around uh, no not quite not quite oh. i thought you're done joking around well i i am now i'm, I'm more serious podcaster oh, oh, oh I see. we're about an hour in right gotta... so maybe start actually doing your job yeah there you go <laughs> hey for how much our fans pay me, <laughs> I am true. doing a great job. That's true. That's true. I did like the use of that he still had the badges for unit. And there are people that, and one of the soldiers understood the connection. But I'm forced to question how long went by since that soldier served under the brig, well, no, the doctor, because that soldier looked like he was 12. Well, right. And it's also, it's, this is where we get into kind of kinds of continuity and what kind of, what continuity does. And, and it's just a step over the line of too far for me. Right. Like it's a good bit. And most of the time it's like the, here, here are these old badges and, you know, and Ace being like, I don't even know who, who you know, I even look at this. Who is Liz Shaw and doctors? I like, just think like a biochemist, I think like a scientist. And it's like, that's a good bit. Uh, the problem is, is that because they spent a little too much time on that, I have these old badges, and then later on, Ben Barra makes the extremely accurate observation of how in the hell did they get this close to me with these antiquated badges? Mm -hmm. Does make all of you look like they're fucking idiots <laughs> for a joke, right? And it touches on the concept of an alternate dimension and, and this dimension, which is something that we've spoken to doctor who doesn't do a lot and doesn't get us to go to their dimension, but it's a, the purpose of this episode. And I like the fact that Cartmel is doing a callback to that underutilized part of doctor who 
that we hardly ever see. Right. Yeah. It's, 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 again, there's a lot of good here. Don't get me wrong. And, and uh, I, I feel like the pieces here are all generally working towards good purposes. It's just, we're in a transition stage. It's not quite found its full mythic form yet. All right. I, I guess we can go on. I do have one more question for you. What is it, Chris? What does biomass to biomass mean, Eddie? I, I don't get I, it. What does that mean? I don't either, man. I, I, I just work here, man. He, I'm not he a... gets into it, though, and he's he's like. One thing I love about Sylvester McCoy is he has the ability to spout just sheer gibberish and make it sound like it's important, which is a vital, <laughs> vital skill for Doctor Who actors to have, frankly. One of the reasons why I, I, I love uh, the Eighth Doctor is because McGann is really good at sounding like he doesn't even believe the shit he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> Which for the Eighth Doctor tracks. The Eighth Doctor is probably not genuinely smiling gibberish. I really don't know what I'm saying at this point in time, but I'm going to keep rolling with it because I'm already here. <laughs> All right. We can move on to episode two. Okay. Episode two. Ancelin's sworn enemy Mordred also recognized the Doctor as Merlin. He warns the Doctor of the reckoning with his mother, Morgane. After Mordred retreats, unwilling to face the Doctor, Ancelin and Bambera vie for dominance. <laughs> the rest of the party retreats to the Gorecrow's Lounge. Mordred, with the help of the sword he calls Brother to Excalibur, begins a strange ritual intending to link his home dimension to present-day Carberry and allow his mother, Morgane, to cross over. As he roars in triumph at the ritual's success, the scabbard in the wall of the Gorkrow's Lounge breaks free and sails across the room towards the lake. The doctor realizes what is happening but cannot stop it. Morgane crosses over and the hotel is plunged into darkness. Morgane and Mordred discuss their plans for battle. The sorceress seeing a helicopter approach demonstrates her power by bringing it down. The helicopter, which is bringing Lethbridge Stewart to Carberry, manages to land and Lethbridge Stewart sets off in search of the doctor. Wormsley shows the Doctor an ace the Carberry dig and points out a mysterious inscription. Doctor recognizes his own handwriting, instructing him to dig a hole, which he asks Ace to do with some well-placed explosives. At the bottom is an 8th century tunnel made of cement. The Doctor and Ace investigate, having left Wormsley to guard them. Beyond the tunnel is a strange room. Ace and the Doctor look in vain for some way out until the Doctor simply commands the door to open and it obeys. As they proceed to the next room, the Doctor explains that Merlin must have built a spaceship they are in, and he is Merlin or will be. Topmost level of the spaceship is King Arthur, apparently in spend animation, and Excalibur. Ace accidentally draws Excalibur, which triggers an automated defense system and traps her in an airtight chamber, rapidly filling with water, and renders the doctor helpless as she begins to drown. Now, before we get into some of the bigger parts of this, I am furious about the cement problem. Concrete existed in Roman times. The Colosseum is 50% concrete. In <sighs> fact, it is such good concrete, we still don't know today how it is made. Our concrete is not as good as Roman concrete. 8th century Eddie, concrete bullshit. Eddie, when concrete. was this written? Uh, still mad, angry, furious about this. <laughs> we knew about Roman concrete in like the 1800s, man. So like, this is not like new information. This was, what is this the likelihood... Was, the writer at this point in time did that research for this bit. I, I fully admit that Andrew Carmel probably had no clue. And then Baron Romano probably didn't either. They were probably like in their early twenties and there's like, this will be cool. It's like, but, but cement existed, but all right. Mad about it. Furious. 
So my question for you then, my friend, is do you know the actress that plays Morgaine? Do you know what else she's done? No, I don't. She's done a, a lot of stuff. She was a queen in Willow. Oh, okay. And she has a direct Doctor Who reference. Who, who did she play Doctor Who? Sarah Kingdom. Is that her, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. The The companion that was almost a companion. Yeah. I do know that uh, the woman who played Barbara actually did was in the, the Tom Baker's last season in a cameo role, too. But I didn't know that was her. That's awesome. And I didn't get to make another one of my uh, my Bond references because we skipped the episode. But in Terror of the Vervoids, uh, Honor Blackman was in uh, Doctor Who. Oh, okay. As a scientist. Very cool. Because so, there's only like 12 people working in British acting at this time, apparently. <sighs> just about is what I, I'm coming to as my as an uneducated American about the uh, the British arts and films. Right. Well, that I mean, that to be great to a level that explains a fair bit because Morgaine is fantastic. In this, yeah. Frankly. Like, oh my oh. god, so good. Again, why why has there not been more Doctor Morgaine fights? Because she's so good. So then, is Morgaine using magic or just science? Well, that's what. Again, I love about this is that it's unclear. We've explicitly talked before about how how Doctor Who handles magic is not nearly as simple as people like it to be. There's been plenty of times Doctor Who's like, it, it's basically magic. And we skipped over uh, Castrovalva, which muddies us even worse with, with um, basically literally things built of math, right? Uh, so I like that... Aronovich at this point in time is very confident in saying I'm, it doesn't matter whether it's magic or science, right? <laughs> They're from a different dimension. They have laser guns, yes, but also Morgane is straight up using magic. And the Doctor, even more in future episodes, we'll see the Doctor explicitly uses magical counterbalances to her, which is and awesome. Mordor just did a teleportation spell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There, like, there were no devices. There was no. none of that. That was. He has a, a, a spotlight and some smoke, wow. and now he's in a new universe, and that's just how it is. So, Eddie, when I cast my teleportation spells, I myself can stop laughing. I felt bad for that actor. I wondered if they gave him a bottle of water because that was a lot of laughing, like just consistently and ongoing cackling. <laughs> I mean, you can't be a villain if you can't laugh like that hard. That, that's an important villain skill. As I give the Jill commentary, Jill walked by and asked if that person was okay before she kept moving. <laughs> He's not. He's Mordred. He's not okay. <laughs> but again, this is the episode where it's like there is no way the Doctor is not Merlin. Could be a parallel universe version of the Doctor. But the Doctor's like, I recognize my own handwriting. Right? It's like it's it's pretty clear the Doctor is even convinced that he is Merlin. But to take a step back to the brewery shed where the doctor faces Mordred, oh, yeah. it is interesting to watch Anselin have to convince both of them that he is Merlin. That is when it all starts to click to play and click into place. Right. Because it's not necessarily the doctor that's saying it. It's Anselin that recognizes him saying, this is who you are. And then Mordred doesn't see it until Anselin points it out. 
that's actually a good point because we have been told throughout Class Doctor Who is plenty of times where the Doctor's bluffing, but we as the audience often don't know when he's bluffing until he tells us later. This is one of the rare times where we see him going into a bluff because we know he does not know he's Merlin. Mordred does not have that information, so we as the audience actually have more information about the scam than the people on TV do. And so we see the Doctor just seamlessly step into that bluff, and it's great to see because even though it's a classic common Doctor moment, because we have some of the Doctor's knowledge, it's fun to actually see him step up and just bamboozle Mordred. Mm-hmm. And we get the the flirt battle between Bambera and Anselin. Oh my god. I can watch these two punch each other for days. <laughs> like, how romance is handling Doctor Who is... I think it's safe to say almost entirely bad. And yet these two have so much goddamn chemistry. (laughs) (laughs) And most of the time they're literally punching each other and you still want to see them hook up because they are just so good together. It's such a great subplot. I love it to death. Romances are handled much like they are in video games. Right. I have unlocked romance option. (laughs) And that's what it feels like. And we had the brigadier traveling in a helicopter. Yeah, and he, and he fell asleep because he's old. Which uh, I honestly like. It is a nice. It, it, it. I agree with you. This scene didn't need to be there. If you had to cut scenes, there are other ones that could have gone in here better. But that since it is here, it does build towards the actual arc of the brigadier is too old for this ship, right? <laughs> There's actually. A small character arc that happens here is like the Brigadier's kind of lamenting retirement a little bit. He goes to his bench and goes, nope, I'm retired. I'm done. Uh, and so seeing those moments of him, the uh, uh, the, the spirit's willing to flesh his weak moment is useful. And again, for a world where more seasons came out of this, would have been a nice passing the torch to Bambera as being youthful and energetic and realizing this weirder world exists and her first reaction is, okay, there's a guy who comes from a different dimension who thinks that he follows King Arthur, but he's in my country and a danger, so I'm going to punch him in the face, is genuinely good. <laughs> but that's her second reaction. Her first reaction is much like the Brigadiers, <laughs> is to, to shoot the bad guy, because we get right. it when... They show up side the TARDIS. She draws down and shoots him. Right. In in like the brewery, she draws down and shoots him. So you have very much that original Lethbridge approach to shooting the bad guy right. early on, and eventually right. that develops into having like your own scientist and everything else and coming to it. Yep. And that arc would have probably been reflective of her character. Yeah. Yeah. And on the flight over, you get a great glimpse of the brigadier talking to the pilot and ask, "Is the new brigadier a good man?" Yeah. So you get that ink, which is used as a comic beat for that. But in reality, when you get the Brigadier and meets Bambera, he automatically adjusts to like, this is who the Brig is. Cool. And there's no, you can't do your job because you're a so-and-so. No, it, it is it is reflexive sexism, not casual sexism. Mm-hmm. Which is a good beat to hit. I also love the fact that Bambera says shame 
when you, everyone knows that is not the word she wants to say. <laughs> <laughs> and the way she just puts a little bit of spin on that word is just, oh, it's great. Oh, shame. It's like, you, well, you wanted to say shit. We all know it. Thank you for not doing it, but we all know what's happening here. The dig site in Nitro 9. We cannot move on until we've at least <laughs> touched on it where you have the archaeologist talking about a decade to remove like an inch of dirt and Ace helping them by blowing it up. And it goes back to the gag that always the timers on the Nitro 9 are off. I love and, it when I first see it. I love it now. And, and it's so like, it's it's such a great, again, the perfect balance of drama and comedy here of the doctor going, we need to have a nice long talk about safety standards. <laughs> and it's like, it's great because A, it is exactly the kind of thing you should say at the moment. And B, you also know deep down they're never going to have that talk. <laughs> Anything else that you'd like to cover about this? Um, so I think we should talk about the, the last one because it's kind of, the last the, the cliffhanger is iconic for for horrifying reasons mm -hmm. because uh sophie sophie aldred actually did almost die during that stunt uh there was a technical failure she could not get out of the drowning tank and they could not stop the water going into the tank uh so she very nearly drowned in there she didn't thankfully uh and when she offered to shoot the scene again, even though the director was like, fuck no, we're not doing that. <laughs> so her terror there is genuine. Like that, she was genuinely scared. But it says miles to Aldred's uh, candor that she was like, okay, that happens. If we need to shoot again, I'll do it. And it's like, and, and the entire crew was like, no, Sophie, dear God, no, we're, we're fine. We're good. But I mean, she, she's been pretty open. Like that was obviously the scariest point of her life, but it didn't stop her from doing it. That's like one of the first things she did after, well, not one of the first things she did. Uh, it was pretty early in the shooting schedule for the season. Um, and the only reason why she didn't keep playing Ace was because she got canceled. She, she I'm like, I'm done. I'm out. I could see an actor going, you know, I'm never, I, I'm doing my obligation. I'm wrapping up. Uh, but she was planning to keep going on. But uh, it, it's, it's, for me, it is also a huge point of frustration because a lot of the reason why that happened was because the BBC was cutting their fucking funding. If they had proper finances, they would have had proper safety personnel and safety procedures on there. So I personally believe Sophie Aldred's life was in danger because the BBC did not care about this show, and that is fucking horrifying. Yes, it is. But other than that, I'm happy to move on to part three if you are. I know that you're you're more concerned about time than I am. You've got uh, that that Eddie watch the be. clock face. Someone's got to be. All right, part three. As the two wander near Lake Vortigern, Wormsley quotes Mallory's Mort d'Arthur to Anselin, who, to his astonishment, a hand appears from the lake brandishing an Excalibur. It appears to be Ace, whom the Doctor managed to free from the spaceship below the lake. She emerges wet, but none the worse for wear, and is joined by Wormsley, Anselin, Bambera, and Lethbridge-Stewart, arriving with Show in her car when she is commandeered. The Doctor continues to fight the spaceship's defense system, but is only stopped when Lethbridge-Stewart, who has entered through the tunnel, intervenes. Reunited, the friends leave by the tunnel and rejoin the others at the dig. 
Meanwhile, Morgana sent Marjorie and his knights after the doctor and the others with the others with orders to take Excalibur and kill any who resist. The Rollinsons are terrified by Morgane's cavalier killing of Flight Lieutenant Lavelle, but grateful, if bewildered, when she restores Elizabeth's sight. The party splits up for the ride back to the hotel. Mordred's knights set up an ambush in the woods between the hotel and the dig, but ultimately attack the wrong car. The others make it back to the hotel safely with Excalibur. There they find that all the locals are being evacuated. Show and Ace slip away unnoticed because units are terrible at their jobs, while Wormsley and the Rollinsons protest but ultimately agree to evacuate. The unit patrol reports that the two soldiers escape the knights and are at large in the woods. The doctor points out that Mordred and his knights are also at large, and that nothing stands between them and the now unguarded missile convoy by the lake, because units are really bad at their jobs. They must be returned to the convoy immediately. Fortunately for the doctor, Lethbridge Stewart thought to bring along transportation, Bessie the doctor's car from his unit days. He and the doctor <laughs> depart, leaving Ace and Show behind with Excalibur and instructions on avoiding Morgane's sorcery. Morgane leaps at the chance to snatch Excalibur from the hands of a young guardian, summoning the destroyer to help her. But Ace remembers the doctor's warning and draws a protective circle of chalk. Much to her surprise, it seems to work until Morgane tries a more subtle psychological attack and sets Ace and Show fighting, trying to draw one or both out of the circle. At the dig, unit troops face off against Mordred and his knights, and Mordred himself is confronted by Anselin, but as they prepare to fight, the doctor intervenes and declares that there will be no more bloodshed. Mordred smugly announces the battle is only a diversion for his mother Morgane's attempt at Excalibur, and that Ace and Show stand no chance against Morgane and the Destroyer. I want to – it's been a while since we've done one of these, but I'm going to go to the crush corner, and this, okay. this one's going to be for Chris. When, as a kid, I had a big crush on Ace. Oh, so- there you go. I, I admit it. It's out there for the world. To know. I absolutely same. I mean, 100%. So I had for, <laughs> for this episode. <laughs> no, I was, I did forgot to into the top because I was distracted by making my uh, army of darkness joke, but I wanted to definitely put it in there. Does it? <laughs> Fair enough. Ace coming out, holding Excalibur. It, it's, it's obviously uh, a humorous bit. Right, it's like you know, the Lady of the Lake, and then Ace comes out with the sword. She's Lady of the Lake, but it actually is continuing her ongoing character arc, although in a slightly metaphysical way. Uh, Ace is starting to become just as much of a mythological figure as the Doctor is, and it's a neat bit. Uh, and if in, in in any other season of this show, even. Um, that would have been just kind of a neat moment and move on, but it does actually get picked up again in a bit of a metaphysical level in future episodes of this season. Um, so it's a neat bit of the Doctor's companion is starting to become just as unreal as the Doctor is. Um, Ace's and Ace's ongoing relationships are showing that she's just a little, a little unstuck. Uh, but again we'll see more of this throughout the season. Um, so it's a neat little moment, but it's actually going somewhere, which is fascinating. And it's also another thing sort of towards RTD where we have Martha almost being a mythological figure when the dialects are took over earth and she spends like a year or so wandering the globe under that terrorist regime, like talking about the doctor and herself becoming like almost a mythological figure, which could link back to ACE. Right. And honestly, uh, I could argue that just about every companion that's had more than a season uh, ultimately follows this arc of becoming a mythological figure. Rose does, Martha does, certainly. Clara starts off there, 
you know, I mean, so lots of the characters but go for some arc. There, there are some exceptions, um, particularly the pawns start to go that route, and then Amy opts out of that arc. She decides not to go that route, and instead gives herself over to Rory. But even then, it gets a little muddy at times because they're also spoilers for New Doctor Who, but also they're the parents to, to River Song, so it, it gets a little weird again, but they, they, they try to avoid that trajectory. I specifically mentioned Martha because Martha didn't get multiple seasons. Martha had one season to try to pull this off compared to all the other people that have multiple seasons and keep coming back. Right. Like, no, Donna I, is the most legendary companion that there ever will be. Because right, no, Captain I, Tate and David Tennant together are pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I agree that, that that Martha manages to do in a season when everybody else takes multiple seasons to do. You're absolutely right. And Martha doesn't and, get enough love, so I want to make sure no, to no. give her love. Martha's awesome, and she never should have married Mickey, but that's all there is. And I'm the like, script should have treated her better. Yep. So we have, with all this stuff going on, we have the main plot of the doctor figuring out what's going on, trying to fit, trying to be hastily understand what, what Merlin's plan was. Uh, we have the, the subplots, several subplots going on. Uh, but one of the most interesting one is the fact that Morgane and Mordred's and her, their relationship, but also Morgane's relationship with what she's trying to do is, is really fascinating. I kind of want to touch on the weird sense of honor that Morgane has, mm-hmm. not necessarily Mordred, because we have Mordred who goes to the the pub, builds up a massive tab, and Morgane kills the pilot, but then pays for her son's tab by, and I'm using quotation marks, curing the wife. Mm-hmm. And then we have the ceremony that they're holding to honor the dead of Earth, where the Brigadier mm-hmm. takes part of which are all very, very specific knightly and courtly things that she's upholding. They also say the next time we meet, we'll be enemies. But for this one moment, we can have a, a peace. Right. And it reflects the honor that the Brigadier has to engage in that ceremony with them. Yeah. And I feel like in a lesser actor, this could have come across as a cover. Like, I'm evil, but I'm going to do this honorable thing because it's required of me. But the way the lines are reflected and presented, Morgan comes across as genuinely believing in these things, right? Like, war has rules and you must follow them. And she is mad, furious at Mordred for fucking up a memorial to fallen soldiers in a way that is, is, is again, really interesting. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to murder all of you, but uh, my son has incurred a debt. I need to repay that debt. So here's how I'm going to do it. Again, minor ableism, but for late 80s, actually not bad, frankly. So that that's interesting to see. And part of me wishes that everyone could have a sense of honor if they were going to do those things. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's a soldier in me. Right. And then in the middle of all of this, we still have Anselin and Bambera flirting like mad. Are not betrothed. <laughs> 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 this is so good. 
I mean, it, it's it's a joke. Like they're both asking each other, like, "Hey, you know, do you have a boy, girlfriend or what?" Are you? Each time they ask, they get attacked, which is <laughs> hilarious when it happens twice. But also, it shows that it shows a they're clearly interested in each other, but also b doesn't stop them punching each other even after those moments. <laughs> it's so good. So it is. We have multiple small plots happening here, and and again, this this kind of soap opera dynamic is something that RTD tried to do and failed in the Fifth Doctor era, and the Rusty Davies will solidify more accurately in the reboot of the Doctor Who. So we see this transition of something that's approaching a soap opera vibe in terms of having multiple characters with different dynamics and relationships they're not always romantic but but certainly these 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 secondary characters have lives and more mundane lives and the the contrast of these high concepts and mundane life is going to be very much a hallmark of russell D. davies um so that it, it it's you could see theoretically the entire season of the carberry cast if you wanted to the fact that it's all crammed into Four episodes, obviously a lot of stuff gets left on the floor, show being probably the most uh, egregious example. But, you know, there are dynamics that are happening here, and there are interesting dynamics, and they all feel natural and organic in a way that felt extremely forced under particularly Sayward, but even before that. Do you think that JNT gave Cartmel more space to play and do these things? I, I, I think so, but I think it's... I personally believe is because JNT was so just basically trying to keep things afloat that it was like, I don't have time to focus on this. So just do whatever. So mm -hmm. I think he actually got the space, but I don't think it was out of any kind of grand design. I think it was just JNT just didn't have time to, to micromanage his script editor anymore. Interesting. And it's also a great scene before all the fighting happens that, the brigadier explains to the doctor that unit has spent this time while he's gone preparing and showing like all the silver bullets, like the armored casing mm. rounds that take out Cyberman and dialects to show that unit has evolved. But again, that jars with the scene in episode one, where it's like, it took a soldier to explain to the brigadier. Oh, by the way, we deal with weird shit. And then brigadier it's like, Oh yeah, we've been preparing for all this stuff. And it's like, which is it? I mean, and, and the, the answer is novelization. It's more the fact that the doctor's records were sealed after the 70s or 80s because unit you know, dating is weird. And so Bambera simply just didn't unseal the documents, but she was also combating weird stuff. It's just that the doctor's relationship to all that was something that she didn't specifically have access to. Uh, but on the screen, it all looks a bit muddy. Yeah. And for the novelization, that would make more sense because there's bureaucracy, their clearance levels, and everything right. else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that the novelization does is that it very much heavily implies that unit is being underfunded. A lot of the funding has been cut. The reason why they're doing stuff like transporting nuclear missiles is because that's how they're justifying their remit. It's like, okay, we have to do these kinds of jobs that the militaries want to do so that we can get a little bit of funding for the things that we should be doing. Again, not clear on the screen, but it makes a lot of sense what you know that. But if you've also watched the history of Doctor Who, you know that was one of the things that the Brig was constantly dealing with even back then. Right. So it, you could apply that if you're familiar with the series, but agreed it is very much not here in the script. Right. 
I do want to talk about uh, a moment of uh, Ace using some slurs. Yeah, I think mm -hmm. it's important to kind of go to Roger. So when Morgane is trying to get them against each other, Ace absolutely uses some slurs against Show. And any other time, we both probably be jumping on this and be like, okay, this is bullshit. I'm reluctant to do so because it's so explicitly part of Ace's arc. The fact that somebody's clearly against what happens as a result is Ace's – everyone uh, has a little bit, I think, of degree of, of internalized racism. Racism is not something you solve. Racism is a constant thing you're constantly dealing with, even in yourself. And I feel like it's a good example of Ace letting that internal conflict seep out uh, because – as soon as she realizes what's going on, as soon as she says it, she realizes that moment makes her realize what's happening. It's like, I wouldn't say this. Why did I say this? Something must be happening. And then the immediate warmth she has to, to, to hug show and apologize. I feel like that was an intentional moment, maybe not framed the best way, maybe not written the best way, but it is clearly intentional and part of her ongoing story. And it's just cool to see that at least is being addressed on some level, even if a bit clumsily and sadly without with some context missing. Yeah. It's hard to know that. That's one of the things that you have to watch the show a lot and also sadly read some novelizations to understand some of the context around that. And for them, they were able to also write it off that it was some sort of mind control for more gain. It's right. Right. Which is yeah. why I think even if you don't know that stuff, it still kind of lands. Yeah. But it, what, what could have been – and frankly, we've dinged repeatedly the casual racism of Doctor Who writers. I want to point it out because I don't – it's not casual. It's very intentional, and it's, it's serving a purpose that I genuinely approve of, even if, again, would have been done differently now, I think. Yes, and it would be more problematic if the character that Ace used it on hadn't been part of the series and had been – a help and is constantly being reinforced as being a great part of the team. Right. Yeah. Show the, the script is not undercutting show at all. In fact, she's, she's, if, if during this, someone had said, you know what, let's make show into another companion. I would not at all be upset about that. Right. I, I think she, she's, she's genuinely useful given what extremely limited time she has. Yeah. Uh, an example of that actually is, um, I, I forget, is it, is it this episode? Uh, yeah, she tries this to grab the little robotic coinage. Right. That and also um, when the brigadier is like, I need to come into your car, you know, and she's like, I'm coming with you. Right. And I just, not even a doubt. Right. So, so show is fantastic. Anything else about this episode? No. Part four. Mordred offers the doctor a trade of the girl's lives for Excalibur, but the doctor outraged threatens to decapitate him unless Morgane surrenders herself. Mordred calls the doctor's bluff, but Lethbridge Stewart appears out of the woods gun ready. The two old friends force Mordred into their car and head back to the Gorakrow Hotel, just as the destroyer, under Morgane's command, has nearly brought the hotel down on Ace and Show. The doctor finds his friends under a pile of rubble, relieved that they were able to stay alive even at the cost of surrendering Excalibur to Morgane. She, meanwhile, has returned with Excalibur and Mordred to her castle in her reality. The Doctor and the Brigadier follow her across the void, followed by Ace, who brings along Excalibur's sheath and the Brigadier's silver bullets. 
Morgaine frees the destroyer to Dr. Dismay. Doctor deduces that since the destroyer was bound in silver chains, it would be vulnerable to the Brigadier's silver bullets. Lethbridge Stewart distracts the doctor, knocks him out, and takes the gun to spare the doctor duty of killing the destroyer. Mr. Wright taunts the Brigadier, declaring him to be pitiful, and asks that the Earth can do no better than him as a champion. Lethbridge Stewart unloads the silver bullets into the destroyer, destroying him in a fiery green explosion. <laughs> The doctor and Ace witness the explosion and find Lethbridge Stewart's body. The doctor begins to mourn his old friend, only discovered the Brigadier has miraculously survived, and said, I am too old for this ship. Morgana and Mordred cross back into a world and leave, take Bamera hostage. They force her to divulge the launch codes of a nuclear missile and prepare for launch. Ansel and the doctor, Lethbridge Stewart, and Ace return Excalibur to the spaceship under the lake. They find the sword activates the spaceship, but does not resurrect Arthur. According to a note left by the doctor for himself, Arthur was killed in the Battle of Kamlam, not placed in suspended animation. And it also warns that Morgaine has control of the nuclear missile, and the four friends rush back to the surface. While Ace and the Brigadier destroy the spaceship, the doctor tries to stop the missile launch. Morgaine is obstinate, but the doctor explains the full horror of nuclear warfare, as I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, and she relents with seconds to spare. She demands of the doctor that King Arthur face her for a final confrontation, but the doctor reveals that Arthur died in his last battle. Grief-stricken, she does not notice Doctor leave. Anselm is freed, and Mordred and Morgaine surrender to unit. Back at Lethbridge Stewart's house, the Brigadier and Anselm are left to work in the garden while the Doctor cooks supper. In the meantime, Doris Show, Ace, and Bambera have commandeered Bessie for a girls' trip out on the town. And we have—I didn't mention it last time because I want to talk about it here. The Destroyer looks fantastic. In this. <laughs> Yes, and they must have had some additional mechanics put in because it even salivates too. Yeah, yeah. That's where the budget for this went. <laughs> Absolutely, the, the, the entire budget feels like it went into the the destroyer. But like the 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 mask, the prosthesis looks natural in a way that you almost never see in classic Doctor Who. You're right. Um, he actually salivates at one point in time. He rips his shirt off, and you can see there's a prosthetic chest underneath that. Uh, it. The horns look great. It, it, it's genuinely one of the best monster visuals in Doctor Who, although arguably there's one coming up in the season that actually looks slightly better to me. Um, <laughs> but again, this is a very tactical production crew. It's like, okay, we have limited budget. Uh, Doctor Who is known for its monsters, so this is the big monster we have for this story. We need to make sure we get this right. Um, and he's monstering air quotes here because arguably the actual monster is Morgaine. Um, but the Destroyer it, visual looks great. And also the voice acting uh, of him is also fantastic. He sounds creepy, but there's a, a nuance and a level there that's really, really good. Um, it's it's just one of my favorite Do- Doctor Who monsters. Agreed. It's fabulous. The, the Brig gets a great moment. Again, the... the the doctor makes a joke about silver bullets, which is framed like silver bullets because werewolves. And the brigadier's like, "Do we have silver bullets?" And that turns out to be important. An actual <laughs> thing that, that that is Chekhov's gag, right? It's like if you mention silver bullets in episode three, it has to pay off in episode four, apparently. But the doctor would also know that he would need silver based on who he's fighting, so it puts it out there without him having to tell them that is specifically what they need. Right. And so that plus the the note joke, it sets up well actually I'm sorry, continues to pay off what's starting to be something in the season previous season, which is that the doctor as 
master manipulator. And one thing that some spin-off stuff seems to forget about the Seventh Doctor is that is the line that's frankly comes up in another uh, episode is I'm not playing chess, I'm playing poker. That's really the Seventh Doctor, right? It's like he is more keen to set up plans, but to to quote uh, a Marvel movie, it's more like fourteen percent of a plan. <laughs> And to me, that's what I love about the Seventh Doctor is that the Seventh Doctor is trying to be the master, and then like, but he can't help himself. He's got to improv, <laughs> and so you have moments like I, I could tell the Brigadier that I think this entity coming maybe with silver, or I could make a pass the comments over bullets and move the fuck on and see what happens. This is one of the reasons why the Seventh Doctor is my favorite Doctor as a planner who has a compulsion to improvise, I may identify with the character a good 95%. Maybe, maybe, just saying. <laughs> Do you leave notes for yourself and then get mad at yourself for not leaving yourself notes earlier? <laughs> have you not known my writing process as I leave notes for myself later to come back to do something? I, I, I say that I know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> and the start of the episode is a nice beat where you have the doctor threatening to kill Mordred but going to the hotel anyway to discover that Ace is alive and saying that like rare alien swords are irrelevant compared to Ace's. Yes. Like reinforcing their relationship, humanizing the doctor who has been fairly alien with McCoy. Right. And to show that alien, human, human at the same time. Good parallel. Right. Again, something I think that uh, a tie-in writer sometimes forget is that the seventh doctor is still the doctor, right? It's like, Yes, there's this elaborate alien or parallel dimension invasion going on, and there's things I need to put in place, but I care about your life way more than any of that. And that is, to me, that is the Seventh Doctor, right? Um, Also, to me, the Seventh Doctor is like, I'm going to bluff and threaten to kill you. The bad guy calls my bluff, and the director's like, yeah, but I'll shoot you dead. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get more of McGain's magic saying, Beware of this man. He's steeped in blood. It's like, that's Brig. <laughs> yes, yes. And you have one of my favorite lines is when the destroyer asks, can this world do no better? And he says, probably. I just do the best I can. Like, that is why I love the Brig. Yeah, right. It's, it's, it is a fantastic send off for, for Lethbridge Stewart. Um, way better. He's supposed to die. Here, by the way, right? I believe and they're it. like, we can't do that. <laughs> and I'm glad they didn't, because honestly, his the the joke of uh, you know, like uh, Doctor Green, you're supposed to die in your bed, and the break waking up, and it's like, Ace is all yours. I'm done. I'm out. Is better. It to me, it's better, right? Because it is. It finishes the passing of the torch that the story's trying to do. Is mm-hmm. the nope? It's time for Ace and the new generation of unit to handle this stuff. I am done. I'm out. I, I've done my last adventure. No more. Uh, and and I think that's good and that's solid. Um, again, it, it's it's setting up for a thing that never happens, sadly. But it if we also- had another season or two, it would have been a nice. The, the, the new unit would have been confident, be able to go forward in future stories. And there's also a tonal disconnect compared to the rest of the episode. While it's been serious humor, serious humor, the death of the Brigadier would then have offset everything else that we've had yeah. up to this point. And then you definitely would not have had the ending that we had 
which would then change the entire feel of this of the run. Right. Yeah. And it's funny, like uh, this story gets a weirdly bad rap um, with fans uh, because they're like, oh, it's too silly. And I'm like, well, on the one hand, yes, it's King Arthur in a spaceship under a lake fighting you know, a big blue demon. But also that's Doctor Who, right? Like, that, that's the show you're watching, you know? <laughs> Do you think the Destroyer is a demon? Well, I mean... That's an interesting point. One of the things I like about this episode is that it's unclear. He looks like a demon. He is as much a demon as the sh- the episode called The Demons. Those people are demons. Actually, slightly See, more so because at no point is he called an alien, even though they're explicitly called aliens multiple times by the third Doctor. I would almost go and think that the Destroyer is a fae. I mean, sure, right, because of the silver connection. Silver Connection, also, it feels definitely more Arthurian to deal with Fae than it would demons. And it just right. has the visage of a demon. But, I mean, more to the point, though, it's like, it's still, it's a mythological monster, right? Yeah. And the idea of, like, you know, yes, but there's all this, this silly stuff in it. And it's like, again, that, that's what this show is doing. It, it's, it's in a transition. But I argue that when Doctor Who gets too serious is when it starts to suffer doctor who has serious moments and him explaining nuclear war to morgane is a deeply serious moment it's a show it's absolutely being absolutely clear what how it feels about nuclear weapons and talking about the horror of nuclear weapons but also you have to step step back and going it's a silly man in a hat telling the queen of the fae to maybe not shoot a nuclear weapon there, there's a bit of silliness that's always kind of baked in to, to the concept of the show. And that's what I love about it is that it could do both at the same time and neither suffers. And absolutely the show st- talks about the horror of nuclear war and also shooting a big blue guy in the face. And stays true to both their characters. Cause up till now she's been nothing but honorable and war is not just death. There's a sort of a, a plan for it. And what he is describing disrupts what she thinks war should be and it has a doctor solving problems how like how they would like to envision the doctor doesn't kill anyone and he doesn't kill morgaine or anything else he defeats her with words kind of some of the best star trek endings are star treks when they win to the power of words Mm -hmm. right and there's an interesting kind of a parallel here because something that's not quite touched on but is implied is that her unleashing the destroyer and her unleashing the nuclear weapon are in Morgane's mind identical. They're both weapons of mass destruction. Just one is mythological and one is technological. Uh, and so the doctor explains to Morgane, this is why nuclear weapons are bad. The brigadier has a different way of resolving his weapon of mass destruction. But in the middle of all of this, Morgane was ha- not happy, but uh, was willing to sacrifice her son in all of this. Because Morgane's like, you won't, you won't sacrifice me. And she's like, die well. And it's like, oh, <laughs> damn. But it, you're right. It's like you see Morgane becoming increasingly desperate. 
but there's a line she won't cross, and it takes the doctor explaining to her she's about to cross that line before she steps back away from it. And she's so desperate, she's almost willing to compromise herself, but she doesn't. And that's what makes this so fascinating is because there are she she's she's clearly the villain. She's clearly the bad person in this piece. Yep. But she has an ethics because uh, even the destroyer is like just like literally salivating like. Put me in, coach. I'll blow up this whole goddamn world. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. It's in my name. You can't be, you can't be mad about it because I'm literally called a destroyer. You know what's going to happen. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. And it's great because she's like, yeah, maybe I'll do it. Like, no, don't fucking do it. He's called the destroyer. Come on, Morgan. She's like, nah, I think I'll do it. I think it's good. <laughs> I hope you know that forever in my head, Cannon, now I see the destroyer saying, put me in, coach. It put me in, coach. I can do it. <laughs> I'll blow up the whole world. God. And then the destroyer going, yeah, okay, you can shoot me, but also, lols, I gave her the codes. <laughs> it's like, the destroyer, again, I love the destroyer because like he only gets one episode. He only needs one episode because he's just like, I'm just straight up evil. And it doesn't even matter because he's just a weapon. But, that, but again, because of that, when, in the middle of all this, when she says, tells Mordred to die well, it's like everyone to her is a weapon. So you realize near the end of this episode that this really was an entire story about really Morgaine because also she's in love with Arthur, clearly. Mm -hmm. um, so this is Morgaine's story, which is fascinating because she's barely in episode one. <laughs> but this is really a story about Morgaine. It's amazing. Great writing and editing. Mm -hmm. Any closing thoughts on this episode? We've heaped so much praise on uh, the seventh doctor and the people that made it happen that it'll be hard for people probably to listen to any more happiness from us. <laughs> uh, I do have some criticisms. I'm happy to go into those. I, I Bessie didn't need to be in this episode. I like <laughs> Bessie, but the car didn't need to be there. It, it was, it, it was a bit too much time. And the look at this car you used to love again. Like when I grew up, I was like, why is this weird yellow car here? <laughs> I, disagree i think bessie needed to be there because it's more a reflection of the brigadier remembering his time with the doctor because the brig says i had this brought here i did this with it and it's mm. reinforcing their friendship because the brig's been retired and it reinforces once again the brig doesn't necessarily like being retired and for yeah, him sure. to finally reach the point where he says i'm out right which means he would no longer be keeping bessie for the doctor okay that's fair I guess I can argue that. Yeah, that was all I had. <laughs> like, there, there, there's uh, a common thread I have with season 26 in particular is I feel like there could have been another episode here. Maybe not quite Ooh. a full episode, but there, there's certainly some bits I'd like to have seen more of. But more brig napping. Think... <laughs> yes, action napping. <laughs> Again, I, I, yeah, I think show is slightly underserved. The the innkeepers, as soon as her sight gets healed, they just immediately drop out of the story. Oh, uh, we thank never you for bringing that up. Okay, you get to see the doctor manipulate people with his psychic powers to leave. We've totally oh, yes. breezed over that. The ultimate level of showing you the doctor that we have, right. There was no yeah. using real. You could say he used words. That was Gallifreyan mind trickery that he did. He 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 mastered those people. 
And you know that because there was a music sting that told you. <laughs> using powers. <laughs> Sorry, you, you made me remember what I had to mention. I want to talk about it a little bit. Right, but it's it's the yeah they 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 evacuate and there's that one con- conflict, but then pretty much the they more or less kind of fall out of the story. A little more establishing of the the the, the town the dynamics I think would have been nice, but again it's not necessary. This is a story that's cut to the bone. Um, it, it focused on the most important parts. Again, some scenes maybe switch around a little bit, but this is a very satisfying story. Uh, and, and there are. There are weird moments like Bambera's like chewing out her subordinate for letting these people in with antiquated passes, and then literally the next scene, she's in a car with the doctor. Yeah, and so it's like, okay, there was something that needs to we we need to, we do need to see that gap. Um, there's there's a few things like that throughout all of this where it's like it's just cut a bit too spare. Um, but overall, I find it to be a very satisfying serial. My concern is they would have made another episode and then it would feel overly bloated because there's maybe three. I would, in my opinion, there's about three minutes that's missing. Okay. And they would have made a 25 minute episode of it. And that would have been, I, I didn't need to see more medieval fighting. Who's doctor do. who's never oh, been God. great at making fight scenes. That's not its oh. strength. <laughs> okay. That's a good point. That reminds me. Here's something that I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to ruin your ability to watch TV forever, listeners, because once you see it, you can't unsee it, is when actors don't have the time to do proper sword fighting choreography, You, they have uh, what's called the up-up-down, where um, they'll cross swords in front of each other one way, they'll cross swords in front of each other the other way, and then they will both go down and block swords that way, and they repeat those three motions throughout the entire <laughs> fight. <laughs> and you see a lot of that in Battlefield. So I didn't think we need another episode. We we didn't need 15 minutes of that. No. But again, this is a show that recognizes what Doctor Who's good at, right? It's like, okay, we're not good at fighting. Having Doctor stand in front of a field of knights armed with laser rifles and saying, stop fighting and then listening. Yes! Is Doctor Who. Is Doctor Who. <laughs> Or even Nothing. better, walking between two people as they're sword fighting. <laughs> it was so good. So yeah, so um, it, I, I don't know. I mean, this is... The only reason why this is not one of my favorite episodes of this season is just because <laughs> the rest of the season is also really strong. Yeah. <laughs> So like this is literally like like, like the, sec- the the third best story out of four stories, and that is damning with faint praise because every story in this season is fantastic. I agree. I guess it's time for my quote. Unless there's anything else you'd yep. like to say nope. about this episode that we haven't said. You have like five million quotes here, so pick one. It was very hard for me to pick a quote. I've got some choices here for me to choose from, and like little or under it or or and based on this conversation though i've decided to go with yes that's right you're going you've been gone gone for ages you're already gone you're still here you've just arrived i haven't even met you yet it all depends on who you are and how you look at it strange business time yeah and and honestly i mean i think many of the doctors are very quotable but some doctors so many good ones 
And so if you're wondering what we're going to do next time we talk about Doctor Who, it's going to be Curse of Finric. I wibbled, I quibbled, I went back and forth. I tried to convince Eddie that it should be Ghostlight, but he was like, no Ghostlight for you. And I was like, all right, uh, I'll pick Curse of Finric, which is a great historical piece that lets me talk about history. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Curse of Finric is up there with Genesis of Daleks, right? In terms of just best Doctor Who period ever. <laughs> you, gotta, yeah. you talk about Curse of Finric. Uh, so if people wanted to talk to you about where you keep your Arthurian spaceship, Chris, where do they find you online? You could come to the Dark Who Studios Discord. Every so often I drop a new invite into the world. You can still find me on on Twitter X because I'm there because I'm uh I love me some bots and I love punching them. <laughs> I'm also on Blue Sky, currently on all under Darker Hue. Or when in doubt, just go and Google Harmon Bound and you'll find me. What about you? Uh, you won't find me if you Google Harlem Bounds, but you will find me if you look up either Pugsteady or Realms of Pugmire. I'm double-checking real quick math. Yes, by the time you're listening to this, I should still have a crowdfunding campaign ongoing. Uh, so if you want to play Cats with Swords, preferably fighting in more than just the three common positions, uh, you can check out Curious Cats of Mal. That is on Backer Kit right now. Please go check it out um, and support that because that is some of my creator-owned stuff, so I get a small chunk of those sales do you know uh, that i'm one of those backers and i, I did do, not get a, I got an email i did not get saying, a personalized thank you from eddie webb people we're we are friends i back his project and he said you know what eh to you spy me i i i took your money and ran on, on my my luxurious cruise down the thames <laughs> <laughs> gonna go buy a a nine dollar pint oh i brought it back oh, so it's funny there now. Go, there it three times and with, and with that, we will see you next week as we punch some Russians in Curse of Fenric.